Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode three of the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast. Uh, we're going to start, as we do every episode, by meeting our panel. I am Andrew Robertson, uh, horror writer, uh, hopeful, and fanboy. I'm Sefer Jerome, and I'm the Ontario chapter head of the Horror Writers Association. And I'm also a horror novelist. I have over 20 novels, and I'm currently working on the Witch Upon a Star series. Hello, I'm Monica S. Kubler, managing editor of Rumorg Magazine and author of the young adult online serial The Blood Magic Saga. Hi, I'm Suzanne Church, and I'm the author of The Soul Larcenist, which is the first book in the Dagger of Sacrados trilogy from the Ed Greenwood Group. I'm Bill Snyder, horror poet, sometimes story writing, and host of uh, the radio show After I. So it's... It's still February, it's still Women in Horror Month, and this is part two of our series of Women in Horror. And we're going to start like we did the last episode with a quote. And this one comes from Jennifer Kent, who made her directorial debut with the horrific feature film The Babadook. And she said, A lot of people, when I spoke to them as a woman and said, Oh, I'm directing a horror film. It was like I was directing a snuff film or porno or something terrible. The view on horror is that bad. Women do love watching scary films. It's been proven, and they've done all the tests. The demographics are half men, half women, and women know fear. It's not like we can't explore the subject. So what we want to talk about in part two of our series on women in horror is horror and the idea of feminism. So the first question that I'm going to put to our expert panel... <coughs> Is horror a sexist genre, or does it empower the female protagonist? It's both. Depending on the book, the film, the song. Because everybody approaches horror differently, and everybody approaches the characters that they create and write differently. And there are certainly examples of really sexist horror films, but there are certainly examples like um, the Alien series of really empowering horror films. No, I think we, we see that with books like Carrie, where you have a female protagonist who is arguably a, a victim to her own ignorance about the trials of being a woman, and that informs her life experience. So can we look at that as empowering? Do we... Do we have certain characters that come to mind when we think of powerful female protagonists within the horror genre? Or is it all revenge? Well, I think almost every piece of literature has the protagonist grow from a point where maybe they don't know what they're doing and they don't understand a situation to the point where they can triumph over this obstacle or over this situation or over this crisis that they're in. I mean, if you look at a character, as Monica mentioned, like Ripley at the beginning of the first even at the beginning of Aliens, which is a sequel, she's a little bit uh, nervous. She's, she's, she's got PTSD. She's having flashbacks to what's happened to her. And yet she's, she's ready to say, you know, don't send me. I'm the worst person to go. And yet at the end, you know, she pulls out all the stops and becomes that strong person. So I think if we do female characters justice in any book, in any short story, in any movie, as long as... The protagonist is the female character. She's going to have a chance to grow. She's going to have a chance to rock. She's going to have a chance to succeed. So I think really the trick is to just 
try to as often as you can in 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 horror have that female protagonist and not use her simply as uh the victim that will get eaten in chapter three and even if it's not a protagonist i think you know in all media we should aspire to have characters that are fully rounded both male characters and female characters you know i don't have a ton of respect for horror movies that simply put women on the screen so that they can show their tits and then get killed I think um, uh, the TV series American Horror Story kind of reflects both sides of this because they have some really strong uh, female characters that grow and evolve through their crazy storylines and then others are like what are you even doing here Um, I I know I have a personal beef with how they treat uh, Chloe Sevigny, I can never say her name, but... Sevigny. Sevigny. Um, Because I think she's hot, I think she's gorgeous, and she's creepy looking, and they never know what to do with her. And like in in Hotel that just happened, her character just sort of, just like it it didn't evolve, it was just dumb. But on the other hand, then you have uh, really interesting characters, like in that same, the Hotel thread, where you have... The Crying Ghost, played by Sarah Paulson, who I, I actually didn't really like that character, but she did evolve and grow through the course of the storyline, crazily enough, even though she's a ghost, because she fell in love with one of the characters. He broke her heart, but then she went on to discover how to make her life in, uh, you know, in modern society. Uh, they, they showed her how. Um, so, yeah, I, I, as Monica said, like, just don't be slicing and dicing women for the fun of it unless there's a point. I mean, we all slice and dice, but um, just to have women in a story just to, you know, throw them away is kind of silly. I watch a lot of bad movies, a lot of good movies, and I would agree that in many cases, women are not necessarily portrayed as well as they could be. Uh, but enjoying a good movie, a good story, is the character development, as Monica had mentioned as well, and as Seth has mentioned as well, is you want to identify and enjoy and appreciate the character, either to hate them or to love them, to see them succeed or to see them fail, but in either way, you still want them to grow. And it's all about having a good story and a good character, whether male or female. Give them both about the same amount of ideas in their head to be able to actually be that story. But now... Seth, you mentioned American Horror Story, and in that we have the tale of two mothers. You've got Lady Gaga as the mother to all these vampire children, and if that's a spoiler, I'm sorry, you should have watched the series already. (laughs) And then you've got Chloe Sevigny, who is a mother who is is struggling with loss and reconciliation, but it, it seems in the case of both, their feminine response, um is punished, which seems to actually be the the archetype of mainstream horror. So why do you think that feminine sexuality continues to be punished in mainstream horror? And we're talking movies, obviously, different forms of media and books as well. I think it's the same thing as, uh, you know, in mainstream life, where if a guy beds a lot of women, you know, it's a conquest. He's a stud. If a woman beds a lot of men, she's a slut. And a whore. I think part of it, too, has been the expectation of what's always gone before. I mean, if if, if you sit down and you look at older movies from 
the 60s or the 70s and you look at the expectations of female characters then compared to now, it's almost embarrassing to watch those old versions of how we expected women, what roles we expected them to play. And I think there's a certain laziness that happens in if, if, if a movie ends up being very uh, kind of punishing the girl for, for being in that horror story. I think that's just a laziness of taking, well, all these other stories did it, so therefore people expect it to be in the movie, so therefore that's why I'm going to place it there. And I think the more good fiction that we see portrayed in television and the whole explosion of the quality of television that is happening now because of things like HBO and Netflix and uh, other forms of cable television or streaming television, the, the standard of writing is just keeps getting higher and higher and the bar keeps getting raised. And I think we're going to find, in general, less of the females getting sexually punished than we saw even five or ten years ago, unless you're on HBO, where I think there's kind of a quota that says, you know, there's been 30 minutes, we need to see a boob now. It does seem a little bit like with Game of Thrones, there needs to be a boob thrown out every 30 minutes, and a woman in power possibly needs to be taken down a few notches before scratching her way back up. That's an interesting point. Yeah, it got to the point, I think, in Dexter, in particular, I noticed it by about um, one of the later seasons, I can't recall which one, but... I was watching the show, believe it or not, with my kids. We were sitting around, and there was one shot where it was such a gratuitous boob shot. It was ridiculous. And we were all sitting around going, wow, they they angled that camera just to get the boob in the shot, didn't they? And that's the kind of television we want to get away from. We want to be more about storytelling and less about the gratuitous boob shot. That actually is interesting, because if you look at the history of horror cinema, for example... Prior to the 70s, where we witnessed the final girl phenomenon, where you had the, uh, the virginal, um, you know, asexually named girl who's Jackie or Bobby or Chris, that, that's your final girl character. Prior to that, there was a lot of exploitation. And I think that people went to see horror movies because they would get the titty shot and then they get all the blood and gore with it. And, and every person who was evil enough to think about a blowjob that was it you were done you were done for the film so now in in thinking about you know a lifetime of of reading horror novels and watching horror movies and participating in the genre uh we discussed this prior to to recording the podcast and we're wondering if we should approach this but who are your favorite characters who are your favorite writers who are your favorite producers and directors when it comes to women in horror and I think, Monica, you actually had a very interesting response. Um, on a personal level, I've always really enjoyed the character of Willow on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Because she's computer savvy, she's making her own way in life, making mistakes, figuring things out along the way, but making her own way ultimately. She goes evil and comes, finds her way back, with the help of her friends. <laughs> but for me, I've always been a super computer savvy you know, tomboy type girl and that's not a character that particularly in my younger years I saw represented in the media a lot. It was always the girly girl, the cliquish girl, the popular girl, none of which were anything that I was through my high school career at all. 
Bill, do you have a favorite female character, protagonist, director, writer? I can safely say that one of my favorite directors right now are the Saska sisters. They're uh, twins out of um, West, I don't remember what city, province or whatever. BC, I think. BC, yes. Um, they came out with a movie a little while ago called American Mary. I absolutely love this movie because it's such a well-done storyline. Everybody in this movie, I could believe going through these experiences leading to that particular end result. And I think they present everything that they've put out so far so well that it, it's just plain good. That's it. I mean, I, I don't look, try to look for any depth to the individuals to behind it. I just want to enjoy a story. I just want to enjoy a movie. And I enjoyed what they've been putting out. So. Queen Bee Safra. <laughs> uh, who, who do we have on the <laughs> on the trophy shelf? Well, I can't mention any writers because all my friends will kill me. No, <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're going to stick to... There are a shitload of excellent women writers out there. A shitload, a boatload, I so will tell all, you. all funny. fictional characters. All, okay. So, um, I guess... Uh, oh, I want to give a shout-out to Debbie Roshan, who... Um, has been a very hardworking person in the industry. She's known most, mostly as an actress, but she also writes and directs, and she had radio show and stuff. And, and that's someone you should all be following on Twitter and, and follow her career. And uh, uh, she's a lovely woman. I've been in two movies with her, and, and she's fantastic to uh, work with and deal with and talk, just talk to and shoot the shit with. She's great. And uh, for characters, um, it's funny because one of my favorite like movies, not necessarily the book, but uh, is Rosemary's Baby. And um, I know as a teenager, I always wanted to punch Mia Farrow because I thought she was just too nervous and jittery and like, what the hell is this? And, <laughs> and of course they're going to come steal your baby because you're just a nervous little weirdo, you know? But um, as, as a woman now who had a baby named Adrian, um, <laughs> uh, and uh, Dorian, I named my children after uh, evil, chil- uh, evil characters, um, but as you know, now I'm in my fifties, and in looking at this movie, because I do revisit it now and again, I, I I understand the story more, especially for what the time it was, and I yeah, I, I just really like that character because she does she wants to get away, but she still wants to kind of preserve her integrity of having this child, and and then. You know, she could have gone screaming away when she realized, you know, what she had, but instead she goes and rocks the cradle at the end of the movie. Um, Because her mother, again, talking about mothers, um, the mother instinct took over, even though it was a demon baby. And that's always kind of spoken to me. And of course, that kind of story, Rosemary's Baby, I often, and I know there's like some TV movie was made of it recently, and I I watched part of it, and I just was like, no, I'm not watching this. Um, But I can't imagine how effective a story like that would be in these modern times, because she could have just like Googled that shit, and then called, you know, Travelocity, gotten a plane the hell out of there to some other country before they got her baby or anything. So um, I'm not sure how much of a claustrophobic uh, paranoia story like that would play out in these modern times with uh, all our technology. And that's something I'm hoping to tackle over the next few years in my own work. Just how, how do you do that? Now, I think that the idea of uh, technology, Google, cell phones, etc., that's an entire month of podcast episodes on its own. <laughs> yeah, how, how to avoid the... Why didn't you just call someone from the closet? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just text me. Jason's coming. Run. Now, for, for myself, before we get to Suzanne, um, 
I think my, my two favorite female protagonists. The first one would obviously be Carrie, because growing up as a young gay man, seeing someone getting bullied and get the insanely ultimate revenge was was sweet as a youth. <laughs> I know it's wrong now. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> sort of. I've blown up many Maybe. high schools. <laughs> but that leads to... We're going to cut that out? No, we're not? Okay. <laughs> that would lead me to Ripley from from Alien and Aliens because to me she's the ultimate protagonist. You've got someone who could very easily have slipped away and uh, and found some sort of sanctuary somewhere but instead her instincts and what I think were presented as maternal instincts specifically for the entire series were to go back, save the girl, and make it out with with anyone that she could. Um, And I I think that speaks volumes to the difference between how women and men are treated in cinema, but I also think that that may have been one of the first times where we had such a heroic female that no one else could have played that role. That That was just for Sigourney Weaver, that was just for the Ripley character, and, and I think that we saw a great break in the genre there. Could be argued, but that's my thought. Well, if I had to pick a character, and I would, I would say it would probably be Sarah Connor. And the huge oh, arc that she takes between when we first see her at the beginning of the first Terminator movie to the total kick-ass, badass mom that she is in, in Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Um, and again, that's another film that's directed by uh, James Cameron. He has a, a penchant for strong female characters, and I think that he has really given female actresses, actors, a chance to to really show their their abilities on screen. If I had to pick a woman, uh, television in particular is one of the hardest places for women to really kind of uh, make their stand in the higher level. Uh, sections of the job which is as a writer producer or director i know that i've been reading a lot of information about women especially women directors and how difficult it is for them to get jobs because there's kind of a stigma in hollywood that says that you can't be a director unless you have experience and because women don't tend to get experience then they never get a chance to be directors and so i wanted to point out two people who are kind of i've always looked up to in television one is jane espenson She's a writer, and she's done some producing. Uh, she has worked on a ton of shows, including Buffy, Game of Thrones, Torchwood, Once Upon a Time, and Husbands, which is a web series that she helped produce and, and write for. And uh, if you follow her on Twitter, Jane Espenson, she occasionally does uh, writing sprints. She encourages young writers. She encourages writers of all you know walks of life to get on board and just write. And I've, I've heard her speak at conventions, and she really does love the whole the whole writing world and and getting people involved in writing. And the other person I think that I've always looked up to as a female working in a difficult male-dominated role is uh, Mimi Leader, and she's directed a ton of stuff in television and in movies, including The West Wing, ER, Shameless, China Beach. She directed The Peacemaker, Deep Impact, Pay It Forward. She's one of the few really strong, really well-respected directors in Hollywood. So that concludes part two of our look at Women in Horror for uh, Women in Horror Month this February. Uh, Now it's time for our interview segment, which will also spotlight a woman in horror. This week's guest is HWA member and Stoker Stoker Award recipient and 2016 nominee Lisa Minetti in conversation with me. So I hope you enjoy it. 
Today, our special guest on Great Lakes Horror Company is author Lisa Manetti. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so, Lisa, you're one of the members of the Horror Writers Association Ontario chapter, although you're, uh, you're across the border. You're in New York. Yes. Um, and you've had a pretty incredible year. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about how 2016 is unrolling for you so far? Uh, 2016 is shaping up quite nicely. Um, I'm working on a novel in progress, which is going a little more slowly than I'd like. Um, it's called Radium Girl, and it's set in the post-World War I era. And um, for people that know or don't know about it, um, during World War I, the soldiers uh, that were crawling through the trenches sort of invented the wristwatch because they would they would drop their watches and um, what happened was they started strapping them onto their wrists. Then what followed was um, the luminous paint had already been invented, and they began to paint the dials. Well, uh, right during the end of World War I and then right afterwards, a company that began in New Jersey called U.S. Radium started these huge you know, campaigns, and, and they sold something like 19 million watches in the first six months of 1919. They were dollar watches from Ingersoll, and I do actually have an ad an original 1917 ad. Anyway, um, these girls that were painting, the dial painters, they were actually ingesting radium you know, from many vectors just because it was all over the place, but even worse because they were putting it into their, into their mouths to lip point um, to get a nice smooth finish when they were painting all the dials of the instruments, and they wound up with like really, really terrible sarcoma. So that's the book I'm working on now. Now, when... When you're writing something based in history, what what type of research do you go into? Um, are you are you a purist when it comes to that, or do you do you take I will, liberties? I will fudge once in a while. For example, um, when I wrote um, the Houdini novella, which is called The Box Jumper, which mm-hmm. is out right now, um, there was one small incident um, that, for example. Um, uh, the Three Faces of Eve was an article before it became um, Cleckley's book. So that came out in 1957. The book is technically set in 1956. My publisher was so pleased to find like a little, a little error. And I pointed out, well, you know what? It's not like we're saying World War II began in 1950. Mm-hmm. So I will once in a while fudge a very, very small detail like that. It was off by one year. Also, in the book, we're talking about iron lungs, which is, you know, the box jumper because the heroine actually contracts polio at one point. But the drinker iron lung wasn't invented till 1929. So, and she's actually stricken with polio in 1921. But I, I, by and large, I don't fudge a lot, and I do as much research as I possibly can. I watch videos. Um, you know, for the box jumper, I read everything Houdini wrote. I watched all of his films, his silent films. I watched, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World. I I didn't read all of Conan Doyle because he was a minor character in the book. I read about 50 books, I'd say, on Houdini and other topics that are related, like mentalism, magic, illusions, um, all kinds of things. So I, I, but the thing is, the research not only helps the writing in terms of keeping your mind, like, in the, the world of the book that you're creating, but it also can give you terrific ideas for, you know, more depth with your characters and, best of all, plot points. You can come up with amazing plot things like, oh, wow, I didn't know this. This would be a great thing to include in, my, in the plot, to, you know, to further the plot along. I completely agree. When you're, 
when you're looking into human history and, and the characters and the things that people have even done to themselves over time, sometimes the most horrific things are based in fact, things that can happen, often biology, body horror. That's the thing. You know, um, when you're writing horror, you're, you're really trying to get, you know, at, the, at those seminal incidents and occurrences of pain and tragedy in people's lives. And, you know, nobody gets through life without experiencing some really horrific things, whether it's the loss of a loved one, some incident, some situation, whatever it is. And then and horror, we're, you know, we're, we're recreating the, that fear, that terror, that pain on the page or on film um, because it's part of the human experience and it's a really important part of the human experience. Um, you know, as far as, you know, body integrity, I mean, I think that's what you, the phrase you use. Um, what happens, you know, imagine a transformation of your, something happening to you that you have no control over. Um, again, you know, there's a million, it doesn't have to be something as awful as what happened to the, the dial painters, but, you know, people every day face heart disease, they face cancer, they face all kinds of things where they feel like their own body has betrayed them. And yet, you know, they're, they're still trying to overcome and find some sort of like sunny side out of that. It, it's, it's a horrific, you know, life is horrific at, at times what is too much when it comes to horror? Because there's a whole spectrum with horror, and you've actually written for two anthologies that um, that could be considered extreme horror. So for you, I'm, I'm thinking of the Zippered Flesh anthologies. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're writing, is is there a limit to where you'll go, or does the story inform itself as it goes? Because for certain authors, there's certain topics that they won't touch, there's certain areas they won't go to, and they don't want too much blood, too much gore. But there's definitely a market for it. Um, well, here's the thing for me. Um, I can't really speak for anybody else, but I'll speak for myself. You know, I have written some, like, over-the-top things that were and, – and especially was in my first novel, The Gentling Box, which won the Stoker, partly because I was trying to prove to myself as well as the horror community at large that, you know, I could write, you know, I could write really poignant – you know, personal stuff, and then also be able to, like, deliver when it came to horrific incidents. But the thing for me is that it has to maintain a certain amount of verisimilitude. And um, simply put, if the reader stops buying into what you're writing because it's so over the top, if they've lost the sense of character and it's only just become situation, then I think you've gone too far. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that you yourself know if, you know, if you're, if you, if you suddenly transitioned when you're writing from, you know, what the character is experiencing and what the character is feeling to a long, you know, passages that are, that's just a list of whatever is horrific, you've probably lost your reader. Mm-hmm. And so then I think you've gone too far and, but it's easily fixed. You can either, Go back and center it back into your your point of view character, or you can cut it back. You know, sometimes less is more, too. So it just depends. It's, it's going to depend on the work, and it's going to depend on engaging your reader. You know, um, I have a problem with films, for example, that open, that start with, like, all these chases, all kinds of horrific stuff, and no point of view character. I Because I, I'm not interested. And, you know, I've seen it a million times on the screen, so I don't care that they're being blown to bits and that they're, I, I mean, I need a character to focus on so that now I have a vested interest. Otherwise, it's just an incident. Now you've and actually, it might as well be a cartoon. 
<laughs> you've you've actually had some of your work made into film. Can you tell our listeners about that? Yeah. Um, the first piece was a short story called Everybody Wins, and it's a very sarcastic um, black humor piece. Um, it came out with in These Guns for Hire, uh, I don't know, it's eight years ago, nine years ago, something like that. Um, and this, you know, I always have this joke at home that, like, oh, it doesn't matter what I wear if I work in my pajamas because it's not like Hollywood calls, you know, he's calling, so what does it matter? And then one day I got this email from someone saying, gee, I hope you get this email, but I'm really interested in your short story. I read it in, you know, These Guns for Hire, and I'd like to make a film. And it turned out he was, you know, it wasn't just like, you know, one of those, like, horrible ads for drugs and other kinds of things. It turned out to be like a real person that was that was an actor and was trying to become a director and he'd made several short films in Australia. And he's this wonderful, wonderful person named Paul Layden. So he was it was terrific. It was a wonderful experience. He, you know, directed this short film with Marlon Ackerman and um it, he actually had flew me out to Los Angeles and I got to be in the film for a nanosecond. And it, it was a great experience. And um, a few years after that, I can't remember exactly the time, whatever that was, 2010, um, I think, um, a, a collection I had done of two novellas that are sort of like companion pieces came out. And from the very beginning, he kept saying, this, I, even when I'm working on something else, that first um, novella, Dissolution, is haunting me. And so now we're just about ready to keep going forward. I mean, the screenplay is all done. Um, he has some definite people in mind for the part. Um, he's, you know, it, it's going very well, but the agency that he's with, they're talking about in-house financing. And um, I can't wait, personally. So he's a terrific person and a terrific director and excellent screenplayist. He's done a bunch of different things. Um, he did Come Back to Me, which was based on... Um, Ralph James White's, uh, uh, I think it's a book, The Resurrectionist, and um, he did The Factory and a, a bunch of other things, and, and he has a whole TV series called Cleaners. So anyway, he's a wonderful person and a, a brilliant guy, and um, he's a, a great friend at this point, too, so it, it, it's worked out really, really well for me. That's actually really exciting, and I think I think some people probably write with the, the visual in mind thinking, you know, this could be a film. So with your experience, do you have any advice for people uh, whose work is optioned or who are approached uh, for something to turn into a film, a short, something for TV? Well, um, it would be helpful, I think, if you, you know, have an agent who can look over the contracts because the contracts are, are, are very complicated. Um, and I also, in addition to my agent, um, used an specifically an entertainment lawyer so that, you know, he would have even more familiarity with, you know, what, what I was actually, you know, giving away as rights, what I was retaining, you know, and, and that kind of thing. So I think, I think that's the, the first thing to have in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is that film is not literature. Um, I know we all say that, but you have to really think about it. You, you don't always want the literal translation of what you've done in a story or a book to be on the screen because it's not going to play the same. I mean, if you just think about things like sometimes when they make a movie from a play, it, you, you can, it, within two seconds, or well, all right, I'll say two minutes, within two minutes, you can tell that it's been 
films on a stage production and it's not really an actual film because mm-hmm. cinematic technique is different. I personally always tell Paul, it's my story, it's your film. I think that he should do what he thinks works. I mean, what's the point? He, if he's just going to you know, regurgitate what I've done, where's the creative process for him? That's that's true, actually, because some people are very sensitive about about changes being made to their work, but it's a different medium. So it's where- a completely different medium. I mean, for example, you know, if you just think about something like um, Summer and Smoke, Tennessee Williams, you've got this character who feels trapped all the way through by her life. Well, so what? How, what are we going to? Williams never wrote that dialogue. It's just implicit. So what is a what is the um, the director supposed to do? Is, is he supposed to just start putting in dialogue that says, oh, Alma says, oh, I feel trapped? No. He put, does really close um, framing shots, really tight on her, so that you get that sense of claustrophobia. I mean, it's not the same translation. It's a completely different medium. Very ab- So I think authors should be aware of that, that, you know, that, that the director may be seeing a different way to even film it, so that it's being conveyed, it's just not being conveyed in the same fashion. But don't forget, we've all been watching films since we were, you know, a year old. We have a sense of what film does or what it's doing. I think it's a real gift to have someone look at something that you've written and say, I want, I want people to actually see this. You know, and, and you, do, you do make certain compromises along the way um, to, to transfer it into that medium. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and also, too, I do think that the director should have leeway as to, as to, you know, I mean, he's trying to do his, you've done what you consider your best work. Let him have the chance to do, consider what he does as his best work. You know what? And there's going to be a million opinions, whether the film succeeds or doesn't succeed, or is it as good as the book or better? I mean, we've all seen films that are actually better than the book. It doesn't happen often, but it does. It's, so, yeah, it's, you know, like, why not just relax with the process? In the meantime, while they're all busy off fil- filming wherever they are all over the world or just in a studio in Los Angeles, while they're off filming, you're, 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 you're not going to be sitting around waiting for this, you know, opus to appear. You're working and writing new stuff. So that's the important thing anyway. <laughs> that's true. That's the life of the writer. You can't stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you can get stopped, but you can't stop. It doesn't matter. It's, it never goes away, ever. Now you've you've got some things coming up. Speaking of of being busy, writing never stopping. Um, you're going to be at StokerCon, and you've yes. got a very specific role at StokerCon for our listeners. That's uh, May 12th to 15th, 2016, in Las Vegas at the Flamingo Hotel. Um, so let our listeners know what you're going to be doing at StokerCon. Yeah, I'm doing a presentation about like the secrets of research, especially for dark historical fiction um you know and i'm going to just basically give away the farm you know anybody you can come and i'll I'll tell you shortcuts i mean i had to learn them but i don't mind passing them along so and just you know things that work things that don't work um and you know i'll tell you your listeners one secret right now i often write my historical stuff not always but often in first person and one reason is you're creating another world Right. I mean, you want the person to be back in 1920 or 19, you know, 1850 or whatever it is. A lot of times by first person, you can immediately immerse the reader in and it's a subconscious identification. So it's you don't have to do it that way, but it's a good thing to keep in mind. I mean, for myself, when I'm writing, it gets me right into that whole 
you know, because, you know, history is shadowy. It's like right there and, you know, almost like a ghost. It's, it's there but not seen, and it's felt but not, not lived. Now, you have won a Stoker Award, which yes. uh, I understand are going to be given out at StokerCon this year. It's sort of an inaugural event uh, with the awards as a part of it. And that was actually for your debut novel, which is an incredible feat, The Gentling Box. Um, how did winning that award affect the trajectory of your writing career? Well, um, the best advice I got was from Chelsea Quinn right before the, um, you know, the awards. She kind of pulled me aside and grabbed me. And we had been talking a little bit over the weekend. She's really a lovely person and, of course, a brilliant writer. And um, she pulled me aside. She said, you know, just remember that you know, um, whether you win or you don't, you still got to write Monday morning, Mm -hmm. which I thought was great advice. But then she also added and she said, um, you know, the thing is you're in this for the long haul. So chances are you'll be nominated often and sometimes you'll win and sometimes you won't, but it doesn't matter because it's really your career as a whole. You know, it's the work that you keep producing that matters. So I thought that was really great advice. And I really took it to heart too. It's it's really true because, you know, there there's writers out there that submit, you know, 100 stories a year and only 10 get through, but you can't let the other 90 get you down because they could be great stories. They're just not for that person and you could be nominated for an award and not win. But in this case, you did. And you have actually been nominated since then. You've actually got quite an impressive <laughs> series of nominations that have happened for you. I, I write carefully. I mean, um, I know there's I, I used to write much faster than I do now. I write more slowly now. But I find that when I write more slowly, it take it gives me a real chance to um, to to pl- to play with language. And I guess in the long run, for me, I started thinking about that we're not just writing words, and we're not just creating you know situations and characters. That you know language is involved. So I I I I, I write more slowly now because language and wordplay is really really important to me. Um, there was one section in uh, the box jumper it's one paragraph and it took me uh, like I, I want to say two days to write it just one paragraph and I don't I mean not everything goes that slowly obviously too it depends on where you are in the book you know I mean I wrote the whole last three or four thousand words in one day but um, anyway um, it's important to me to you know to, 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 to have the rhythm of the sentences be correct so that the, like, the reader should be hearing it. I mean, I hear it when I'm writing it. So that's a, another goal of mine. Now, while we're talking about process, if, if people go to your website, which is lisaminetti.com, that's with two N's and two T's. Yes. Um, it's, it's a really atmospheric website. And you've clearly taken a lot of time to create a certain atmosphere for people coming to the site. When you're writing, are there certain things that need to be in place for your process? Um, I'm not sure I understand what you mean. <laughs> like, well, one thing is for sure I need silence because I hear as I'm writing. I mean, after a while I'll lose that and I'll just keep, you know, it, it goes away a little bit. But um, I, I definitely, I definitely need like my mind has to be anxiety free. So I have to really compartmentalize as best I can so that like if I'm thinking about bills and I'm thinking about, you know, I got to call this, I got to call the doctor, I got to call it, then it's, it screws it screws things up. But I definitely need to. Um, I need quiet. I need quiet and I need no interruption. So I pretty much have all my friends trained, like don't call before five o'clock in the afternoon because <laughs> the phone will not be answered. Yeah, it takes a while to train people to do that. But after a while, they get the idea that, you know, it's not that you're not available. You're just not available then. 
That's exactly what I meant with the question, because there there is a, a perception to the outside world if someone is writing that they can they can be interrupted and just pick it up whenever. But there's you know I've I've got a certain counter in my house that I write at, and it's my most comfortable spot. I like to be there. I put headphones in, and that's when I'm writing, and I don't want to be interrupted. Um, yeah, I I don't do headphones because I because the music distracts me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can like I can put music on and listen to it for a little while to get back into where I am. Then I have to shut it off because I have to like not hear it. But um, uh, anyway, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. <laughs> and <laughs> there's no noise here. I, I actually wanted to talk just a little bit more about the website. You've got a virtual haunted house, which I think is absolutely fantastic. So tell me about where the where the idea came from for that, and what kind of experience you want people to have when they're in there. Yes, um, I. <laughs> I was writing this book called The New Adventures of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. And the premise of the book is that these two uh, twin white cats, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, are adopted by a witch in Rhinebeck, New York, and they are her familiars. So all through the book, they long to be boys again, but they really are, like, grooving on, you know, having all these, like, witchly powers. And it's it's very much in the style of Mark Twain, so it's very funny. Um for some reason, a lot of um, people in the horror community tend to think that it's that, that even though there's a YA edition, it, it's really it, it's sort of like Twain. I mean, you can read it as an adult; it's absolutely fine. Anyway, I decided when I was writing the book that it would be a really great idea to have this tie-in website. And since the house, you know, they were in this house that was a haunted house, and you know, there were all these like crazy spells, like the randomizer, glamorizer, and all that stuff that I should make this website. So I was friends with this woman named Gina Fiorita, who was fantastic. At that point, I did not know one thing about how to make web pages, how to do anything. And she really started the whole thing. And then I was able at some point to, you know, also take over some of it and help out and whatever. But it's basically a big random site. You know, I had that before I had www.lisaminetti.com. And it's for people just to go and enjoy. You can, you can do everything from, you know, predictions to look at Lizzie, old Lizzie Borden stuff to, you know, go through the house, go through mazes and puzzles. And, um, it was, when it first came out, it was hugely popular. I mean, like in the first year or two, it, it had like something, I mean, I, I haven't even looked at it. It's just the, the stats anymore because, you know, kind of like odd to other things, but you know, it has some, like some insane amount, like 5 million hits in two years or a year and a half, or whatever it was. Oh, so it's, it's a lot of it's, it's it's a fun site. I I have to admit I don't really keep up with it too much anymore to update it because cause, you know my life has changed in in ten years. It's it's a lot of fun though. It's it's it's, it's a good it's time meant to be fun. And and I have to say, I mean, I think that people that are reluctant, uh, you can get the books on Kindle for you know like whatever it is a buck ninety nine two ninety nine. People people will enjoy them. I mean, and by the way, the cats. Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn were my actual cats. And Tom was the smartest cat in the entire universe ever. No kidding. So uh, he, he really was a big inspiration for the book. Well, I, I do know you're a cat lover. You have two more cats now. Is that right? Yes. Poor Tom and Huck. Uh, you know, I, you know, I'm not to spoil any fun for anybody, but you know, they, they did go on to their great reward. Um, and this was like a pure accident about eight years ago, nine years ago, I got two black cats and a friend of mine said, gee, I think you should name them Houdini. I go, well, they can't both be Houdini. <laughs> and at that point I did like a little, you know, I said, Oh, I think he has a brother. Go, let me go grab a biography off the shelf. Start looking. Oh yeah, that's right. You know, one was named Theo. Oh, okay. Well, she's a girl. Well, oh, that's like, she's Theo, like in Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. 
Exactly. So, Theo's a girl's name, too. It's very yes, punk rock. absolutely. So, <laughs> yeah, and it, that was long before I even thought about writing a book about Houdini. So, I know, life is interesting, isn't it? <laughs> There's, it, it definitely is. Now, where... Where can our listeners find you online? Give us the full pitch, the Twitter, the Pinterest, the Facebook, the website, everything. Yes, I, you want me to go look up all those things where they have to go look for me? Jesus. <laughs> or should they just Google you? <laughs> yeah, they can Google me. And you know what? I am on all of those things. I'm on Pinterest, you know, and there's lots of pictures of, you know, um, the, the radium girl, like, the, you know, some pretty horrific stuff. And um, I'm, I'm on, and there's, you know, I also went to, like, Rye Playland and took photographs of their, you know, their carousel, which was built in, like, 1915, and so, um, and I'm on Twitter, um, and I, I, you know, I never can remember any details. If I didn't have a computer that remembered all the passwords, I'd be, you know, SOL, but it's anyway, um, and, and so, and I'm on Facebook, there's, I have an author page and just a regular, you know, timeline page, and wherever else. Okay, I don't so know, Google Plus, all that stuff. So I'm not on Tumblr or those things just because, you know, this is, this is all, the social media is eating up more time than I like already. There's only so much time in the day. It's true. And, it's and true. Navigating all of these things and curating them and keeping them up to date, it, it can be a real pain in the ass. But You're not kidding. And, you know, I always try to, like, I think every time I find myself on these things too long, I think about Jonathan Mayberry because he gave the best advice ever. He's like, you know, he writes for 50 minutes and then 50, and then he goes on to Facebook for 10, and then he disappears back into the writing. So it's, it's, it's good advice. I keep trying to take it myself. <laughs> so our listeners can find you at lisamanetti.com. As I said earlier, that's Lisa Manetti with two N's and two T's. Lisa, I would like to thank you so much for coming on the Great Lakes Horror Company and, and sharing some of your experiences, your knowledge, and, and your story. It's been absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. I really appreciate it. It was, it was wonderful chatting with you. Um, I had a great time, too. Okay, so uh, for our listeners, if you're at StokerCon in Las Vegas between May 12th and 15th, you can meet Lisa Minetti when she presents, um, and you can find her online. And until next we meet, Lisa, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us, and remember you can download a new podcast every Monday. For more on Lisa Minetti, find her haunting the web at lisaminetti.com, and you can also visit her virtual haunted house at thechanceryhouse.com. To connect with the HWA Ontario chapter and become a member, visit lovehorror.biz slash HWA. And you can find members of the HWA at various conventions this year. A couple of conventions I'd like to highlight coming up. We have the March Comic Con in Toronto, Ontario at the Toronto Convention Centre from March 18th to 20th. So look for our HWA Ontario booth there and meet some of our members. Uh, in Toronto, there is also a convention called Ad Astra, which is science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and it's been running for over 30 years. And that is from April 29th to May 1st. And then, of course, you absolutely must make sure that you get your butt to Las Vegas, May 12th to 15th, to the Flamingo Hotel, where the Horror Writers Association has its annual meeting and its annual award ceremony, uh, StokerCon 2016. And we also will be premiering Horror University, where you can actually go to school and learn how to be a horror writer. Next week, Bill Snyder will be talking to Monica J. O'Rourke, author of Suffer the Flesh, about her career writing extreme horror. Until then, unpleasant screams. <laughs>